0: right now on Matter of Fact. It was always a place that was in peril, always. A village of Asian American settlers in Louisiana, nearly swept away by a storm's raging tides. It's that part of our American history that's not documented. What can these early climate change victims teach us about the future of America's coastal communities? Plus, the world met her when she refused to give up her seat on the bus
1: i found that word accidental completely wrong
0: but the life of rosa parks started well before that moment and continued on fighting for change rosa
2: parks and many other black women were at the forefront of this
0: movement we explore the untold story of the civil rights icon And millions of COVID-19 survivors are long haulers.
3: This is our shadow pandemic.
0: What's ahead for those who are still suffering when the rest of the world moves on?
1: I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Climate change is threatening the nation's coastal areas. The devastation of Hurricane Ian is the most recent reminder of our increasing vulnerability to extreme weather, both in terms of loss of life and loss of land. Louisiana has lost more coastline to sea than any other state, according to the Environmental Defense Fund. The state loses a football field's worth of land. Every 100 minutes, the communities along the Mississippi Delta are the most vulnerable. One community, Pecan Acres, is using federal disaster funds to move to higher ground. But they won't be Louisiana's or America's first victims of climate change. Our special contributor, Joey Chen, traveled to St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana, and found a place where a people and their history were nearly washed away. Just beyond a
4: blind pass at the edge of Lake Bourne lies a history nearly lost in these brackish waters. As unlikely as it might seem, this remote cove is where Asian America began, Bayou St. Malo, Louisiana. Why is St. Malo important?
5: It's important as a site of you know the first Filipino-American settlement in the United States. We think about the beginning of Filipino-American history, Asian-American history. This We're is right. where it begins? Right in the swamps of Louisiana, right right in the marsh here.
4: Don't feel badly if you've never heard of St. Malo. Randy Gonzalez hadn't either. And he's a Filipino-American from New Orleans, just 40 minutes away. The history books barely mention that Crescent City was a major world port beginning in the 1700s, drawing Filipinos and other seafarers from Spanish colonies. An 1883 article provides what little is known about the early days of St. Malo. It begins... For nearly 50 years, there has existed, in the southeastern swamplands of Louisiana, a certain strange settlement of Malay fishermen, Tagalas from the Philippine Islands.
5: They say when you entered the bayou, you wouldn't see the houses yet. But when you turned to bend, suddenly you'd see rows of houses for a mile. You know, it's you went down.
4: House after house. House after
5: house. Just kind of stretching down the bayou. And when you say village, describe it to me. It's a bunch of uh, palmetto-covered huts. They were put on stilts, and they also, you know, had these kind of hat-shaped eaves, which were kind of familiar to to the Philippines.
4: Also familiar, fishing in the shallow waters, the shrimp dance to peel crustaceans from their shells, traditions and language brought from home, but with challenges that were familiar, too. What happened to this community? Storms, right? The
5: storms would destroy it, uh, you know, every 10 years, probably. It wasn't worth it to live there anymore.
4: The final blow was the 1893 hurricane. The October storm wiped out St. Malo, which at its peak included 150 Filipinos, mostly men. Manila Village and smaller fish camps also dotted the bayou, but in time, all were washed away. These were the first climate refugees.
5: It was always a place that was in peril, always. They could still make a living, but the trauma of going through those storms, some people just will end up giving up. There's a certain amount of resilience that everyone has to have to live out there, but at some point, it's like, no, it's not worth it anymore.
4: Many descendants scattered. Today, Louisiana has one of the smaller Filipino populations in the U.S., but old favorites are drawing a new generation back. What's in the dough?
1: So it's just uh,
4: rice flour, evaporated milk, coconut flakes. Jessica Bayuga knows the power her bunuelos and other family recipes have to draw Filipinos close.
1: That's how I met my husband and um, how I met, how I still meet most Filipinos, because they, they look for the food. <laughs> There's new, younger Filipinos. Chefs cooking their mother's food or their grandmother's food, opening up their wounds and wanting to share their grandmother's cooking or um, and then tell us about it and tell us their stories.
4: Today, St. Malo's story rests on higher and drier ground at the Islaños Museum that honors the early Canary Islanders who came here too. Both groups determined to save the stories of their communities.
5: It said. At- Part of, of our American history that's not documented in the newspapers, not documented by the government or the storytellers, but documented at the kitchen table, you know, out on the pier, gutting some ducks or you know fish or whatever they're doing. Like those stories that get shared in those moments, I think are really part of the fabric of communities
4: and the thread that can save history from time and tide. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen in Bayou St. Malo.
0: Next on Matter of Fact, this historian's book on the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks comes to the screen to dispel some long-held myths. I was
3: like, wait a second, she's a badass, right?
0: What the first ever documentary reveals about Mrs. Parks as both leader and freedom fighter. And later, ever wonder what it's like on the surface of the moon or Mars? how Space Center Houston could give you a closer look from some front row seats. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. Meek, tired,
1: the quote, accidental, unquote, matriarch of the civil rights movement. For decades, Rosa Parks' legacy has been as the woman who refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white man. But there is so much more to her than what she did on that one day, December 1, 1955 and nothing she did was accidental. The book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, digs into her decades-long activism. The book is also the source for my new documentary by the same name, it's now out on Peacock. The author, Jean Theo Harris, is a distinguished professor of political science at Brooklyn College, and she joins me now. To me, it really was so educational that Every year, you would do this big, giant Twitter thread about Rosa Parks. How did that start for you? People love history threads,
3: and it really is a way to get a lot of information to people in a fairly digestible manner, kind of bring people into kind of the fullness of her story and that everybody who thinks they know who she is, we get her wrong. I did not know 40 years in Detroit. Oh, I did not know Black Power. Oh, I did not know her global like vision.
1: The New York Times, when they were writing about her death, called her the accidental matriarch. I'm curious why you think people are comfortable in describing her that way.
3: I think it's a very American mythology, right? That you can kind of stumble onto history and change things. And I think she fits with that idea. One of the greatest through lines through her life is she's fighting injustice in the criminal legal system. From the 1930s, really till her death, right? She's fighting police brutality. She's fighting wrongful accusations. She's fighting the way the law doesn't protect black women. All of these things are issues we're still facing today. Probably the most inspiring thing I take from her is this ability to be discouraged and to keep going. And if we're gonna talk about her superpower, it's that.
1: Jean Harris. her book is The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Nice to talk to you. The documentary's two directors are Yoruba Richin and Johanna Hamilton. How did you decide the way you wanted to tell that story and the stories that you would include in the life of a woman who lived to a very old age?
2: We wanted to lead with Rose's voice, with with Rose's words, and how do we do that? You know, not only through archival footage, you know, video of her, um, audio tapes that we had access to, but also her writings, which um, you know are really in her, obviously in her own voice and her own handwriting. So that became a
1: guiding principle of how we made the film. Just a moment ago, Jean was explaining to us how she would get on Twitter annually to really tell everybody the stories of Rosa Parks that nobody knew.
6: You know, we like simplistic stories, but history is this long continuum. She'd been an activist for 20 years. She'd been member, you know, the secretary of the NAACP for 10 years. She was well aware that they were seeking to bring litigation to and, um segregation on the buses. And so that particular day, that particular bus driver. And she thought, you know, I've had enough. I am not going to do this. She had no idea what would befall her. But she did know that there was an underpinning of organization in Montgomery. Um, She hoped for success. I mean, thanks to the Women's Political Council. Again, you know, women were, uh, you know, underpin the boycott throughout, um, but they were ready. And people heeded the call.
1: So, Yoruba, I'm curious, Rosa Parks had a tremendous affinity and admiration for Malcolm X. And Dr. King is held up often as the model, right, of, of the appropriate civil rights fighter.
2: Not only was she a supporter of Malcolm X, but of the Black Panthers, of the revolutionary group, the Republic of New Africa. I mean, these were radical groups really uh, at the front line of pushing for reparations, for um, for self-defense, Um, for black liberation, not just being able to sit on on a bus. We want people to not only be inspired by her lifelong commitment and to understand that Rosa Parks and many other black women were at the
1: forefront of this movement. The film is called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Ladies, thank you for talking with me, appreciate it.
0: Coming up on Matter of Fact, this California woman is still suffering the lasting effects of COVID-19.
7: When we go to the doctor, they literally say, oh no, that's because you're fat. That's because you're old. They will not attribute it to long haul.
0: Why are so many long haulers struggling to get the medical care they need?
1: We've all noticed it, fewer masks, no social distancing, and shorter quarantine times. The president even declared the pandemic over last month. But is it really? As of October 12th, the CDC reports we are averaging over 38,000 cases a day, down by almost 12% from the previous week. However, only 14.8 million Americans are boosted with the fall vaccine, and that's far below what public health officials want as the new sub spread putting more people at risk of contracting COVID and potentially becoming long haulers. The Census Bureau estimates about 16 million Americans have long COVID. Our correspondent Dina Demetrius looks at the impact of long COVID on one California woman's life and her battle for treatment.
7: I like being independent and self-sufficient and a lot of that is gone
6: In the recesses of what was once a more agile mind are Cindy Lee's memories of herself before contracting COVID. Since spring of 2020, Lee has been enduring the myriad frightening symptoms her COVID infection left behind.
7: Even now, I get things that are new. My typical heart rate was 65 beats a minute. And all of a sudden, my heart rate's going up up to 100, you know.
6: And I'm thinking, am I having a heart attack? She went on heart medication. Then within a few months, a parade of new symptoms came to stay. Blisters and rashes spontaneously appear, constant extreme fatigue, distorted vision, and significant brain fog. But you know, the first one,
7: I'm blanking again and I apologize. I'm sorry it went blank
6: again. I've lost track of what we were talking about, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can see the areas in which you're just so struggling to get through the conversation. There's
7: like pressure in my in the front lobe of my brain is what it feels like and my eyes feel like they're being pressed down on. Mm-hmm. And then the blankness and the words start going away.
6: Like so many long haulers, losing her health has also meant losing her livelihood. At 51 years old, Lee, a massage therapist, can now only manage a couple of clients a week. I'm just trying to get myself back
7: up and working so I'm not a burden on anybody anymore.
6: Lee's own burdens include visiting cardiologists, neurologists, neuroophthalmologists, and more. She says it's been a battle to even have them acknowledge she has long COVID, something Lee noticed her primary doctor recently added to her file. It's
7: like they all admit that they know about long COVID, you know, yet when we go to the doctor, they literally say, oh no, that's because you're fat. That's because you're old. That's because it's always something else. They will not attribute it to long haul.
6: Diana Barron is the founder of Survivor Corps, a long hauler advocacy group she started in March 2020. It's now grown to roughly 200,000 members suffering from long COVID.
3: People were being diagnosed with anxiety when they were actually having tachycardia. If you have a racing heartbeat that goes from 70 to 130 just because you stood up, that's not in your head
6: of the handful of long COVID clinics in the country, the one at Mayo Clinic run by Dr. Ryan Hurt is at the forefront of actually treating patients, linking both research and treatment.
4: Using some of the medications that we've used for other uh, like disorders and diseases that impact the immune system. And some of these are autoimmune uh, disorders. And so we're trying to decrease the inflammatory response that we're seeing in these patients by using some of those traditional medicines.
6: Hertz says the real story lies in PET scans, a test long haulers rarely get. Rather than showing the brain's structure, the brain's ability to function lights up a PET scan. And we have found that
4: they're pretty abnormal in many of these long COVID patients. But we know that the inflammatory response that persists does impact the brain.
6: There are currently months-long wait lists to be seen in a long COVID clinic, but Barron says the wait has already been devastating for many.
3: If COVID was our war, these are our veterans. And as Americans, we do not leave our comrades on the battlefield. In
1: Los Angeles, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact.
0: Ahead on Matter of Fact.
1: In Dillingham, Alaska, elementary school students campaigned to have a local creek
0: renamed what inspired their months-long effort to remove a derogatory term in their community. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Words matter,
1: and words can inflict harm, and that's why Interior Secretary Deb Holland formally declared squaw as a derogatory term. Originally, the word meant woman, but white settlers used the term as slang for the indigenous women they raped and assaulted. Holland issued an order to remove the term from federal use. So for the past 10 months, a task force has been reviewing proposed changes to the names of 643 federal sites. To mark the end of the process, Secretary Holland penned an editorial in the Washington Post. She wrote, quote, America's public lands belong to all of us, and we have a responsibility to ensure that these lands are accessible and welcoming to everyone, end quote. End quote. So now it's up to individual states and communities to take similar action, and many are. A historic ski resort in California is now called Palisades Tahoe. The Golden State, along with Maine, Oregon, Minnesota, and Montana, have all passed legislation to remove the word from geographic and public places. In Dillingham, Alaska, elementary school students campaigned to have a local creek renamed, and they succeeded. It will now be called Amau Creek, which means great-grandmother and honors older female
0: generations. Next on Matter of Fact, a look at what's coming to Space Center Houston.
1: It's kinda like a front row seat on the surface of the moon or Mars. A viewfinder that's out of this world from the Houston Chronicles photographer Marie de Jesus. This week marks 30 years since Space Center Houston opened its doors. The nonprofit is NASA's Welcome Center and has served more than 24 million visitors, including me two weekends ago. To celebrate, Space Center Houston announced a 100-acre expansion project. There will be two active terrains that will replicate the look and the feel of the surfaces of the Moon and Mars. The best part? Visitors will be able to watch astronauts train from an elevated exhibit hall. It's kind of like a front row seat. The facilities won't be ready for another couple of years, but we will be sure to keep you posted. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week.
0: Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.